All right. So if, uh, by the way, if you're not here to learn how to make decisions, you're in the wrong place. And there's a few people that would love your seats. So when we're talking about making decisions, we're really talking about discerning the will of God. That's probably what causes us the greatest consternation is we don't want to make a bad decision. There's also the concern that you could miss the will of God um, and potentially choose the wrong major in college, choose the wrong career. Um, I was always worried that Ann would figure out she married the wrong guy. Um, when we make a decision to change jobs, to move um, geographically, so many people, I have talked to so many people in the last two years that have needed help with the decision to leave California, and I guess my biggest question is, what's so hard about that decision? Um, and always, always, the answer is Grace Church is what made it hard, right? People want to make a decision to have another child, to grow their family. Um, there's a lot of decisions. And so I want to start off with contemplating, is there any such thing as a bad decision? And all God's people said, well, of course there are bad decisions. We could all give testimony to that. But let me give you some really bad decisions in history, just to make you feel better about your bad decisions. <laughs> in 1999, NASA lost a $125 million satellite because of a really bad decision. Engineers at Lockheed Martin used the Imperial system when calculating coordinates of a communication sta station while NASA used the metric station or metric system. This caused the Mars orbiter to miss its mark, burn up its engine in the atmosphere, and disappear forever. $125 million of your money gone forever. Um, you all know the story of the Titanic. It's the largest passenger ship in history, and despite being warned, a decision was made to go ahead with the fateful trip. And despite that impending danger, on April 15, 1912, the ship scraped an um, iceberg, and you know the rest of that story. In today's dollars, that costs $175 million, but worse, it costs 1,500 lives. That's a bad decision. Um, from history, Japan miscalculated the consequences of picking a fight with the United States, and it cost 4 million Japanese lives. That was about 5% of their pre-war population. Hitler joined in, made a really bad decision, and decided to declare war on the United States, and 5.7 million Germans lost their lives in that war. Another 7 million were injured. That's 12.5 million people affected by a very bad decision. Nearly 20% of their pre-World War II population was ne negatively affected. And then you have the Russian Tsar Nicholas. You're probably familiar with that story. He made a really bad decision. Bad company corrupting good morals. He decided to uh, make his best friend a man by the name of Rasputin, who was a drug dealer. He was a drunk, illiterate, immoral. He was a grifter. And he had enormous authority and influence because of some bad decisions by Nicholas, and he contributed in a big way um, to the revolution and the fall of the emperor and the czar system. Some really bad decisions. But there's some really bad decisions in the Bible, too, recorded in the Bible. And this was fun to think through. I had to go from 100 down to about four or five. You could probably think of some bad decisions in the Bible. One that we talked a lot about here at Grace Church with VBS is a man named Jonah. 
In Jonah chapter 1, um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. And being the accountant, I don't know my geography, I googled it. Tarshish is exactly the opposite direction of Nineveh, a very bad decision, if you know the story of Jonah. You have, I I thought of the thieves on the cross, these criminals, the Bible calls them criminals and robbers. They made a whole series of life decisions that eventually put them um, in, um, they, they lived a life of crime resulting in the sentence of death by hanging on a cross bad decisions. I think of Noah's neighbors. You know the story of Noah. He's building an ark. The destruction of the world is coming. And in Genesis chapter 7, verse 4, God says, after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth. Gave them seven more days, not for Noah, but for the people to do what? To repent. If you look in Matthew chapter 24, it describes what happened in those, 27, or in those seven days. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Really bad decisions. In fact, it describes later in Genesis 7, all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds, cattle, beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life and the spirit of life died. Bad decisions. Think of King David. If you know the story of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it starts in verse 1 with a bad decision. And it seems like a fairly innocuous bad decision. David sent his army out to battle, and he decided to stay behind. Don't know why but it was a bad decision. And then what happened is a cascading series of decisions that took him from that decision to getting up in the middle of the night, and it says walking around on the roof of the king's house, and he saw somebody else's wife taking a bath. And from there, you know the story. He, uh, uh, she gets pregnant. He sends for her husband to cover his sin, Her husband, Uriah, doesn't fall for it. And so what David does, the great King David, he sends Uriah back to battle with a sealed note to his commander saying, quote, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. A whole series of really bad decisions. One somewhat innocuous all the way to adultery and murder. Bad decisions. Finally, I think a thought of Pharaoh. All the way through the early part of the book of Exodus, he's constantly choosing to face off with God. That is not a good decision, is it? And he, ten times in the Exodus account, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Ten times it's recorded that he made a really bad decision. So whether we we talk about the decision of Japan and Germany or David, Pharaoh, presidents, kings, political leaders, they go to work every day thinking 
they are making really important decisions. And they are, aren't they? They go home thinking their decisions have saved the world, improved the world, impacted the future. It's easy to imagine that a president and the people around him can change the world. They have so much power, unmatched power. They can change the lives of millions with a single decision. You've lived through that. In 2020, these people shut down the world. Those political leaders around the world in a coordinated way shut down every church in the world. That's power. What does God think about their decision-making? Psalm 2 says this in verse 2, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens, what does he do? He laughs. He laughs at their decisions. The Lord scoffs at them, it says. In Isaiah 40, verse 15, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. This is the God we serve. Nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. That's what he thinks of the decisions that our political leaders make around the world. So all of this brings us to two polar truths, and I say polar because these are seemingly in complete conflict with each other, and I need you to grasp both of these truths as it relates to the decisions you are making in your life, the decisions you have made in your life, and whatever decisions you're contemplating today. Here are these two truths. Your decisions change nothing. Okay? Oh, should we close in prayer? <laughs> the second polar truth, and it is truth, is that you and I must make good decisions. Do you see the tension already? Your, deci- your decisions change absolutely nothing. And yet you and I are bound by our Creator God to make good decisions. So let's explore both of this. This is the classic collision between the providence of God and the initiative or the responsibility of man. There is a tremendous tension, and I want to walk through that tension and encourage you with that tension and also challenge you, and at the end, maybe reconcile those two tensions, which is a word you would expect an accountant to say. We're going to reconcile those two. (laughs) There's a bit of a dilemma in how we think about decisions. We must make them. You think about how many decisions you've made even today or this weekend or this past week. You must make decisions. And on the other hand, our decisions have no impact on the will or the providence of God. The sovereignty and the providence of God is a great difficulty for finite human beings like you and me. Our pride calls um, for more control than we actually have. It calls for more credit for our good decisions than we actually should take. It's a hard truth because of the frailty of man, but this morning I'm praying it's a great comfort to you that while you must make good decisions, you cannot miss out on the will of God. When you make decisions, you must lean into and yield to that first truth, that your decisions don't matter. 
It's very, very important. God's will dictates everything. This is particularly helpful when you look back at past decisions and wonder what might have been. That question is largely a waste of time, except to the extent it causes you to say, thank you, Lord, because I am who I am and I am where I am because you have put me here. Okay? Back in Isaiah 40, um, since I was already there, let me just keep reading verse 13 to give you a picture of why I say my decisions and your decisions really don't matter. Verse 13 of Isaiah 40, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? The answer is nobody. Or who as God's counselor has informed him? Have you ever informed God of anything he didn't know? Definitely not. With whom did God consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? The answer to all those questions is nobody. Goes on to say later in Isaiah 40, verse 22, it is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And I love this parenthesis. And its inhabitants are like what? Grasshoppers. Congratulations, you've been promoted to grasshopper. <laughs> I have grandchildren who talk about grasshoppers, wondering why are these creatures here? Maybe it's so that God can remind us where we fit in the grand scheme of things. But God sits above the circle of the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. That is a very big God. That is a God who created us, created everything that exists, and he makes the rules. That is why I ask, really? Are you going to change God's mind? Are you going to make a decision where God's going to say, oh, I didn't think about that? Yeah, accounting school instead of medical school. Good choice. I'll adjust my plan for Chris Hamilton. I was never going to medical school. God created us, he created me, he created you, all the worlds, and he makes the rules. We respond to him, not the other way around. And if you can, turn to 1 Samuel 2. I want to show you something in 1 Samuel chapter 2, a passage that's called Hannah's Prayer of Thanksgiving or Song of Thanksgiving, and all of life is described in this passage. And again, what am I talking about here? What does this have to do with making a decision? I want you to understand that our decisions change nothing. The first truth from Scripture. All of life is described in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's a deeply personal expression of a godly woman of who God is and what He does, and it's one of the most profound explorations of the omniscience of God, the power of God, that God has control over every aspect of every life, including yours and mine, and every aspect of the circumstances of life, every aspect of the relationships in life, everything. 
Verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn, or basically that means my strength, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your, or God's, salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Now, believe me, we could do a whole morning on 1 Samuel 2. I'm not going to do that. We're going to go very quickly through this and hit some highlights. But here's who God is and what he's done. He's our strength. He's our salvation. He is holy. There is none like him. He is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. He has infinite, perfect, and holy knowledge and understanding and foresight. He knows the end from the beginning. And here's this, he makes all the decisions. God makes all the decisions. We don't weigh his decisions. It says at the end of verse 3 there, he weighs our decisions. He weighs our actions. And his standard is infinite, perfect, complete, and omniscient holiness. And that's a big statement. And I'll just have to leave that there. We have to keep moving. Verse 4. What, what happens now is Hannah starts talking about every aspect of life and human relationship. Why are your circumstances what they are? Is it because of a good decision? Bad decisions? Bad, um, bad circumstances come out of bad decisions? Not necessarily. She addresses who is strong versus who is weak. And I want this to be personal for, for you. Why are you sick today? Some of you are sick. I don't know who, just so you know. Some of you are really healthy. No physical problems at all. Is it because if you're sick that you made bad exercise decisions? Or you didn't eat three meals a day? or you ate the wrong food, is your health a result of your decisions? Why are you hungry? This is kind of an empty statement in a country like the United States. It's coming, though, it sounds like. Those who are hungry in the world are well-fed. Are they in that place because they made good budgeting decisions? They clipped enough coupons just to show my age. Why do you have the number of children you have, those of you who have children? Is it because husband and wife made a decision, we're going to have X number of kids, and that's what you did? It's easy to think that in this world, where we all think we're in charge. Anne and I have three daughters. Do we, do we have three daughters because we decided to have three daughters? To be very, very careful. Why are you alive and others are not? Are you alive? I'm assuming you're all here alive. <laughs> Are you here alive because you made good decisions and the people who aren't here made bad decisions? Are you here because, uh, maybe this is too soon, but you socially distanced and masked? Or, and the people who are not here, did they make bad decisions? Risky decisions? 
Are you rich or poor because of bad decisions? You got the wrong degree, got a bad job. You don't like your boss and your boss doesn't like you and that's why you're poor. Bad decisions, does that lead to you being rich or poor? Those of you who are influential, is it because of your decisions, your plan, with the right friends, the right associations, the right degree, and you've manipulated or created a circumstance where you are now in a position of influence? All of that gets blown away by Hannah. Let me read it to you. I'm going to start back in verse 3 again. Boast no more so very proudly. This is a very important introduction to this. Don't boast. Here, let me give you the Chris Hamilton translation of that. Your decisions don't matter. Don't boast so very proudly. Don't let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. The introduction is, God is the God of knowledge. He is doing all of this. Verse 5, those who were full hire themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry cease to hunger. What that saying is, there are people who were hungry who are now not hungry. That is a reference to they were poor, down and out, homeless, and now they're not. Who did that? God did that. They didn't start making good decisions. God did that. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. God does that. Verse six, get this. Here's hard truth. A virus doesn't kill. Cancer doesn't kill. What kills? The Lord. The Lord kills and makes alive. The reason you're alive today is not good decisions. It is the provident, sovereign will of of the creator God who knows every detail of your life, that's why you're alive. And the minute he decides you're to die, what's going to happen? You're going to die. The Lord kills and he makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. If you're frustrated in your lack of wealth, you are exactly where God puts you. Isn't, that, isn't there some comfort in that? I hope you're getting the comfort side of this. That the Lord does all of this. You are not outside of his perfect design, his perfect will. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. This is not a promise, by the way. This is not a promise that if you're a Christian, you're going to sit in the seat of honor. What this is, is a description of reality. He lifts who he lifts to the seat of honor, and it's not necessarily a Christian. Just look at the world around you. Verse 8 goes on to say, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silence and darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail." Those who contend with the Lord will be what? Shattered. God is God and we are not. You know, there's a bookend here. In verse 3, it says, God is the God of knowledge. And in verse 8, it says, the earth is the Lord's. Do you get that? Everything in between that is in the context of God did it. 
God does it. God will do it. He is God, and we're not. Whatever your circumstances and condition, whether it's your health, relationships, your status, your, um, your wealth, whatever it is, you are precisely where God puts you. He not only knows your circumstances, he has directed all of your circumstances. He decided. And when it says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered, I need to give you a cautionary perspective on that. Those of us who want to take credit for where we are is contending with the Lord. You're stealing his glory. Those of us who want to challenge where we are, I can't pay my bills. I want to be married, and I'm not married. I want to be in a different career, but I can't. All of that is contending with the Lord. Because wherever you are, God puts you there. That should encourage you, but it should also caution you from contending with the Lord. Taking credit for His providence is contending with the Lord. Questioning or challenging His providence is contending with the Lord. The Lord did it. So let's make the application now. What does this have to do with making decisions? Well, God makes decisions. Our decisions fit within His will and His decisions. We bend to His will. He does not bend to ours. We have to understand, believe, and trust in the providence of God. God's will is never thwarted. You cannot ever miss the will of God. That should free you up to make decisions. Romans 8.28 is the New Testament equivalent of what I've just read you, by the way. You know this verse. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. The application here is, Our decisions do not cause things to work together for good. What causes things to work together for good? It's a who. It's God. Okay? So we've come to be what might be an uncomfortable point. If I stopped here, you could conclude there is no reason to listen to anything else I have to say, which may be true. You're free to go. (laughs) You might conclude that decisions don't matter And if they don't matter, which I have said several times, which is true, why not just let go and let God? Well, those two truths about decision-making are still there. We've dealt with the first one. Your decisions don't matter. The second truth is that you and I must, must make good decisions. Are you confused yet? Well, let's work through this. Based on key passages in the Bible. As we talk about making decisions, there's two truths about making decisions, and I'm going to show you this. One is you must endeavor to make the right decision, the right decision. You must endeavor for a 100% batting average. And the second thing is that the process of making decisions matters. So let's talk about that. I'm going to spend a few minutes now on the other side of that fence. What does the Bible say about us making decisions? And there's some clear examples in the Bible where we are assigned the responsibility to make a decision. And we must make the right decision. There is one decision that every single human being in the history of the world, past and in the future, must make. And that is, are you going to repent 
or harden your heart. We don't understand all of that. That is a classic um, intersection between the providence of God and the responsibility and the initiative of man, but there we are again. And hopefully I don't have to um, say too much on this, but you have a choice, had a choice. I had a choice. Every person on this earth has a choice, and they know the choice. And the choice is you either confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, or you harden your heart. And Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Do you want to be saved? You have a decision to make. You want to reject God? That is a decision. That is maybe the most compelling example and illustration of why I say your decisions don't matter, but the second part is you must make decisions. And by the way, if you have not um, made the decision to repent, I would love to talk to you this morning. There's any number of people that would. Acts 26.20 says that we should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Repentance is a decision, and that decision is reflected in action. And we also know that in 2 Timothy, it says that repentance is granted by God. Two polar opposites. But at the end of the day, you must decide. The example of a ruler. I've talked about kings and rulers and presidents. In Proverbs 16, you're you're familiar with this passage probably. It's another example of where the Bible tells us we have to make decisions. It says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. Do the king's decisions matter? God laughs at them. Do the king's decisions matter? He should not err in judgment. You see that? We make plans with an open hand. We make decisions, and the Lord directs steps. That erring in judgment is to act unfaithfully or treacherously, to transgress against God. And that command to not err in judgment applies to rulers and kings, but it also applies to you and me. Another example of daily life where decisions matter, Ephesians 5.15 it says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You have several decisions to make throughout the day. Paul, in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, says you need to be careful, you need to be wise, you need to be purposeful, and you need to be diligent. All of those are decisions. Being careful how you walk means a walk worthy of the upward call of Christ is not something that just happens. It is the result of a series of decisions. You need to be careful, to be wise, to make, most, make the most of the time because the time is short. We're to redeem the time. That's a decision. That is not letting go and letting God. And those decisions, those day-to-day decisions, are defined pretty clearly in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Examine everything carefully, it says. Hold fast to that which is good, 
Abstain from every form of evil. You have a decision to make many times a day, good or evil. As it relates to your behavior, to your life, the decisions you make, you are to choose good and not evil. The Bible goes on to say that you are to make a decision about events going on around you as to whether they are good or evil. Hebrews 5.14 defines the mature person as solid food is for the mature, but who, because of practice, decisions, have their senses trained to discern what? Good and evil. Good and evil. Bible makes very clear that is the central issue in our day-to-day life. We are to make decisions, and we're to make the right decisions. As we decide what we're going to do, as we evaluate those around us, the world around us, what is good, what is evil, that is a decision. So again, there's two things I'm confident from just in that quick run-through of those passages. You must endeavor to make the right decision. And it follows then that the process of making decisions matters. If you and I are required to make the right decision, then how we get to those decisions matters, doesn't it? So let me talk about that for a little bit. Talk about the process of making a decision. Life is complicated and confusing, isn't it? So I want to give you some questions to consider as you make decisions. I was thinking about this early this morning, looking back at life. I'm an old guy now, so I can say stuff like this. It is amazing to me how few decisions are before me now that have any impact on anything. I'm talking about personal decisions. And in reflecting on that, I look back, the most life-altering, life-affecting, massive decisions in my life were made back at an age when I had no clue what I was doing, zero wisdom, um, and no experience. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, my wife's decision to marry me was epic. She had no idea what she was doing. (laughs) Changed my life. It's great. Where I was going to go to school, what I was going to study. I remember struggling struggling mightily with, am I going to go to seminary? Those decisions were made um, at an age when I didn't have the experience, the knowledge, or the qualification probably to make those decisions. But you know why you make those decisions? Because the Bible makes very clear that we are to make decisions, and we're to endeavor to make the right decision, and that the process of making a decision is very, very important. And so what I want to go through now is how to make those decisions, in a world, in a place where if you're like me, I still lack the wisdom. I still lack all of the experience. I don't have a corner on truth, but all of that is available to us. So let's walk through it. First question is, does the uh, decision I'm making violate the revealed will of God? It's a basic question. And this might be an easy one for most decisions. If you're trying to decide where to go to college, obviously there is no revealed will of God. It doesn't say in uh, Second College Chapter 3, you must go to Cal State Northridge. (laughs) 
or Master's University. But it does say, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. To the extent God's will is revealed, your decisions should and must comport with the will of God. I've been in counseling situations where I've actually um, had a spouse say, I don't like my wife anymore, and I'm trying to decide, um, should I divorce my wife? Is that a hard decision? That is not a hard decision. Because God's will has clearly been revealed. I'm using that as an extreme illustration of how simple that question is, but how profound it is and important. Second, is what I'm proposing to do obedient? And let me illustrate that a little bit extremely. Ann and I used to be involved in uh, high school ministry. Probably 20 years out of our marriage, we were involved in youth ministry at that level. And this was always an easy one for high schoolers. What you're proposing to do, what you're trying to decide to do, are you obeying mom and dad? That's the threshold question. If, it's, if you're not obeying mom and dad, guess what? Don't do it. That was easy. But as you get older, as we have gotten older, you need to know, you need to think about, am I being obedient to the Lord? We need to obey. Jonah, obvious example got on a ship and went the opposite direction. Was that a hard decision? Apparently not for him. It should have been harder than it was. Is it obedient? The second or the third question to ask is, are my motives pure? Motives matter. Proverbs 16, 2 says, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Lord will both bring to light things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Motives matter. Another question, is it wise? Is it wise? I read from Ephesians 5, 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. We are called to make decisions, and we are called to make decisions good decisions, correct decisions, decisions that are consistent with the will of God, that are obedient, where our motives are pure, and that reflect wisdom. So back when I was making these life-altering decisions that I was completely unqualified to make, I was called to make wise decisions. And so are you. Another question, am I prepared for the consequences? Am I prepared for the consequences? Am I prepared to absorb and endure the results if this is a bad decision? Okay? I think of David. David made some really bad decisions, and we'll see in a minute, he lived the rest of his life paying the consequences of those decisions. And I'm not advocating that you get paralyzed by what might happen, God is in charge. But the Bible makes clear that we are to be careful. I've already read that to you from Ephesians 5, Ecclesiastes 5, where it talks about making decisions that involve a promise, a vow, that you are not to be hasty in word or impulsive in thought. You have to think it through. How do you make good decisions? You make sure that those decisions are 
within the will of God or doesn't violate the revealed will of God. It, it reflects an obedience to God. Your motives are pure. There's wisdom, and the consequences have been considered. I think of a decision I made early in my marriage to accept a job, and I told my new bride, I promise we're not changing jobs again for at least two years. It was such a bad decision that at two years and one day I resigned. But I had made a promise, and I had to stick to that promise. And I learned a big lesson in that decision that when I made that decision, I never considered what the consequences might be of my loose two years, the longest two years in my career. And one of the best things that ever happened to me too, by the way. But that's another story. So am I prepared for the consequences? So sometimes we need help with that decision, right? Everything I've just laid out to you, you're probably feeling, I'm not qualified to know this or to see this or to be objective about this. I need help. So let me talk about getting help with your decisions. And I hope this is practical and helpful for you. Some questions to ask. And now, what do I do about getting help with a decision? Here's some guiding principles of getting counsel in making decisions. The first is that the Word of God is primary. Many of us have a difficult decision, and the first thing we want to do is to call our best friend. Call mom, call dad call anybody and say, tell me what to do. As believers, our first instinct needs to be to go where? To the Word of God. Remember who God is. Our decisions don't matter. Remember that we must make a good decision and the process matters. And if you're trying to seek wisdom and you're trying to seek the will of God and you want to know what is obedience, there is no better source than the Word of God. You go to the Word of God. Second is, where there are no obvious biblical principles, where should I go to school? I don't think you're going to find a lot of biblical principles on that. Okay? Then you get wisdom. You get wisdom. That's a repeated command in Proverbs. Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is what? Get wisdom. And in all you're getting, it goes on to say, get what? Knowledge. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. In other words, you are not wise. I am not wise. That is a command that is ongoing in Proverbs, and the implication is we are never done getting wisdom. If you think you're done getting wisdom, you're in trouble. You have bad decisions in your future. So get wisdom. The third about getting counsel is to pray. And you would expect to hear that. And this isn't a throwaway. This is extremely important. Matthew 6, 9 says, where Jesus is teaching us how to pray, he says, pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I love that. Just as a reminder here this morning that that was the first half of what we talked about. Our decisions don't matter, right? God is holy. Remember, be reminded, God is holy. God is provident. God is sovereign. Now, make a good decision. 
Verse 10 of Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your what? Will be done. That's the prayer of a decision maker. Lord, your will be done. That's an expression of humility and submission to the providence of God. That's also an expression of the desire that whatever my decision is, that it be consistent with the will of God. I think it's perfectly okay to pray to God and say, what should I do? You can go all the way through uh, Psalms and see that kind of prayer. To go before the Lord and say, I don't know what to do. I need to know what to do. The Bible also talks about prayer in the context of decision-making in James 1.5. And I know you know this verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? Ask. Ask not of other people, but of who? God. Ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You, you pray declaring God's providence and sovereignty. You pray expressing the humility and the desire that your decision is consistent with the will of God. You pray asking for clarity. You pray for wisdom. You pray for the glory of God to be advanced through your decision, but you pray. So how do you get counsel? The Word of God is primary, and where there's no obvious biblical principles, you get wisdom. And the first step in that is to pray for wisdom. And the next step is completely appropriate, is that you get wisdom from others. And there's a, I'm not going to take the time to develop it, but there is a, a lot of um, explanation in the Bible of older men teaching younger men, older women teaching younger women. Part of that teaching is, help me make good decisions. Help me with the process of decisions. And let me give you a few thoughts on getting wisdom from other people. When counsel is received, when you go to someone and say, I need help with a decision, and they give you the counsel of that decision, you can adopt that. You can incorporate their thinking into your decision process or even into your decision, or you can reject it. Did you know that? You are not bound when you go to someone and say, I need help with a decision what should I do? And they tell you what to do. You are not bound to follow that counsel. Okay? But what you are bound to do is whatever your final decision is, to own it as your own decision. Okay? Not, Chris Hamilton told me I should go to Cal State Northridge, so that's why I'm going to Cal State Northridge. That says a lot. That's borrowing credibility or trying to distance yourself from a decision that might be, and probably is, a really bad decision. I don't know why I have Cal State Northridge in my mind today. <laughs> I guess because I see people from UCLA, I'm afraid of UCLA. <laughs> but when you ascribe your decision to people to whom you went to for counsel, it can be a sign of arrogance that you don't want to be associated with this decision because it just might be a wrong decision. It's their fault. But it's also trying to buy credibility. John MacArthur told me to do this. Oh, okay. It must be okay. And I'm not mocking John MacArthur. I'm trying not to mock anybody, by the way. 
but I'm highlighting for you that that communicates a lot that is contrary to the call to make good decisions and to honor the process of making decisions. You can get your counsel from somebody, but ultimately, whose decision is it? It's yours. You have to own it. So with all of that, let me address another question, an observation. Some people get so buried in the process that they forget the first truth, which is that you must make a what? A decision. There are people who cannot figure out what kind of a car to buy because they have paralysis by analysis. Okay? I see Hondas in the Bible, but I don't see the Lexus I want. You know the Hondas in the Bible, right? They all went in one accord? Okay. So if you're driving anything other than a Honda... All right. I don't know why that came to my mind. I I am actually thinking of one particular person who for years could not buy a car, could not make the decision, okay? And while I'm telling you there's some steps you need to take in making a decision, and I think you should honor these steps. You should think about these questions, and you should get wisdom. At the end of the day, don't forget the first point. Make a decision, Okay, And people who can't make decisions, I think, are reflecting a lack of understanding or a trust in the providence of God. They're giving their decision way too much import. Go back to the first point. Your decisions don't matter. And then the second point is you must make good decisions. Okay, Pride plays a role. Deathly afraid of anyone knowing that I can make a bad decision, so I'm not going to make one. And an unwillingness to translate an understanding of the providence of God to the issue of depending on the providence of God. I've made lots of decisions in my life, and I bet you have too, where you weren't sure if you were making the right decision, but you had to make a decision. And then God either honored that decision or he showed you, I'll say me, very clearly that was a bad decision. But are there really any bad decisions? When it comes to being in the will of God, nothing I can ever do will take me out of exactly where God wants me. Okay? So let's talk about after the decision's made. We've talked about the providence of God. We've talked about the need to make a decision, the process of making a decision. Now let's go past, and I just started talking about it. You look back now on the decisions you have made. How do you view those? And this is where we reconcile these two principles. The principle of your decisions don't matter with the principle of you must make decisions. And what's the reconciliation of that? Well, the best I can do for you is before you make your decision, you need to work very hard to what? Make a decision. Once the decision is made, what's your focus? Providence of God. The humility and the understanding that God, His will is going to be done. And the decision I just made doesn't make His life more difficult, doesn't change His will but it might make my life really difficult. The number of times I moved and changed jobs uh, many years ago would have changed had I known God's perfect will, right? 
Yet was any of that outside of God's will? None of it was. We needed to go through all of those transitions and changes and all of that for our sanctification and for the glory of God. So how do you think about past decisions? Well, first, be mature about that. Own it all. All your decisions were your decisions. And when I say be mature, let me give the example of a life decision. Young men who aren't so young anymore, who decided at a young age to live a carefree, undisciplined life. There are consequences to that, aren't there? So later in life, when there's no career, no family, no stability, no wealth, maybe a lot of great memories of a lot of fun, of being spontaneous, doing whatever you wanted to do, you're not a victim. You're not a victim, and maturity looks back at that and recognizes that, that wherever I am, that's where the Lord has me. And can the Lord override those kinds of decisions? He does all the time. Another character quality as you look back at your decisions is integrity. The principle, I think I might have uh, mentioned this earlier. If I didn't, Psalm 15 is the chapter in Psalms that talks about integrity. And there's a really interesting verse in there, verse 4. The person of integrity swears to their own hurt and does not change. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. And what that means is you keep promises and commitments reflected in your decisions. I know I've already mentioned this, but as you look back at your decisions, to the extent your decisions, and if you're in a family, in a job, other people depending on you, this applies to more decisions than you might think. That to the extent you made decisions that other people relied on, you have to follow through on those decisions. Not because anybody tells you to. It says that the person of integrity swears to their own hurt and does not change, meaning there is no accountability from anybody else. There's accountability from my own words. I'm going to work that job for two years. I'm not changing jobs for two years. Guess what? I don't change jobs for two years. Ecclesiastes 5 says, When you make a vow to God, and do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a what? Anybody know? Mistake. How many people in this world look at their spouse and their family and their children and they say, I made a mistake? That is a lie from the pit of hell. There is no decision there. That decision was made a long time ago. You choose the one to love, and then you love the one you chose. That's the import of that decision. And that's a, an example of what I'm talking about when I say, as you look back at your decisions, you need to look at them with integrity. That passage in Ecclesiastes 5 goes on to say, why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and many words, there is emptiness. Rather, I love how this ends, fear God. What does it mean to fear God? Your decisions don't matter. Make good decisions. Live in the providence of God. And if you make a decision where it involves a commitment to somebody, 
Integrity says you're bound to that decision. That is the revealed will of God. Trust. As you look back at your decisions, you have to trust the providence of God. His will was done, His will is done, and His will what? Will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then there's humility. There is wisdom gained by learning from mistakes, isn't there? We've all made bad decisions. Any one of us could have come up and taken the first few minutes of the session and told the world about your bad decisions. I'm not saying that to be critical of you, but you're human. We all make bad decisions. We are called in humility to learn from those mistakes. And if you never recognize or acknowledge those mistakes, you won't learn from those mistakes. And the world, the, the world is full of people like that. And the Bible is very blunt on how, what you call people like that. They're called fools. Don't be a fool. Proverbs 1.7 says, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. We need to be that wise person, not the fool. So will we make bad decisions? Yes, we will. Are those bad decisions a surprise to God, or do they alter His will? Praise the Lord, no. He is a good and loving God. I talked to you about all these bad decisions in the Bible. Think about Jonah. Jonah made a really bad decision. What's the end of that story? Nineveh repents. God's will was done, right? Jonah just made it a little more difficult. We learned about a big fish. I was going to say the personification of grace, but I guess it's the fishification of grace. God sent a fish as a, as a demonstration and a picture of his grace saving Jonah when Jonah didn't deserve it. He made a really bad decision, didn't he? We all make bad decisions. Nineveh repented. Jonah was allowed to repent and then obey. You have the thief on the cross. We all know about the thief on the cross, don't we? Why That man made, those men made so many bad decisions to get a life sentence hanging on a cross for their crimes, and yet we know who they are. Why do we know who they are? Because God wanted us to know who they were, and it didn't matter what the decisions were in their life, that's where they would have been, on either side of Christ. And by the way, one of those men Luke 23 says we're going to meet in heaven. Your decisions don't matter. Make good decisions. And when you make bad decisions, God turns those into amazing pictures of his grace. Those two men were next to Christ so that one of them could be next to Christ and what? Repent. Noah's neighbors. We all know about those neighbors, don't we? Maybe you didn't before today, now you do. But what we learned from that is that the judgment of the Lord was fulfilled exactly how he said it was going to be fulfilled. Those people all made bad decisions. King David, I've already talked about this, but David is known for several things. But maybe what he's known best in this century of Christians is his example of confession and repentance. If you want to know what confession looks like, study David. 
You want to know what repentance looks like? Study David. David made a whole series of very, very bad decisions as an example for us. He also illustrates lifelong consequences. From 2 Samuel on through the rest of his life, he is circling the drain. It gets worse and worse and worse. Consequences of his decisions. So David is an illustration and an example to all of us that when you make bad decisions, there is forgiveness. There is repentance available, but life is long and there are consequences. Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh is an amazing story, a wicked, evil man who ruined the lives of a nation. (laughs) Why? He made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, and in Romans 9.17 it says, for he, it answers the question, why? For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. God used Pharaoh, all his bad decisions, for what purpose? To show the glory of God. And God actually says, this is why you were here. Our decisions don't matter. God's will is done. We need to make good decisions. So when you reconcile the providence of God and the responsibility to make good decisions, as I said before, think of it maybe this way. Those decisions that you have before you today and in the coming weeks, months, and years, work hard to make the right decision. You are responsible for making the right decision. Think about the process of making decisions, but once that decision is made, trust in, believe in, acknowledge the will of God. Hold your decisions with an open hand. And I'll, I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians fifteen ten is a verse that kind of addresses the, this tension that I've laid out for you today. And I love this verse. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. You got that? Wherever you are, that's where you are. God knows. He doesn't just know. It's by His grace that you are where you are. And it goes on to say, but I labored even more than all of them. You don't let go and let God. You labor. You work hard. You make decisions. And then he says once again, he says, I labor even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. It always comes back to the grace of God. But it always goes back to you and I are called to labor, to work, to make good decisions and to be faithful in the process of making those decisions. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we are um, mystified at times by your great design, by your wisdom and your knowledge. We recognize that you sit above the circle of the earth, and we also recognize that you have given us the freedom to participate in a decision process Lord, it is our desire to recognize that our decisions don't matter, 
but to also recognize that we must make good decisions. Lord, I pray that each of us here today would go from here to make good decisions, not so that we would look good, but so that your name would be glorified and lifted up, that we might see your will worked out through us. And Lord, we do pray that your will is done here on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen. All right, have a good morning.